This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents Super Communicators How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. This is the author, Charles Duhigg. Prologue If there was one thing everyone knew about Felix Sagala, it was that he was easy to talk to. Exceptionally easy. People loved talking to him because they always came away feeling a little smarter, funnier, more interesting. Even if you had nothing in common with Felix, which was unusual because the conversation inevitably revealed all kinds of opinions or experiences or friends you shared, it felt as if he really heard you, like you had some kind of bond. That's why the scientists had sought him out. Felix had been with the Federal Bureau of Investigation for two decades. He had joined after college in a stint in the military and then had spent a few years as an agent in the field. And that's where his superiors had first taken note of his easy way with others. A series of promotions soon followed, and eventually he landed as a senior regional administrator with a mandate to serve as an all-around negotiator. He was the guy who could coax statements from reluctant witnesses or convince fugitives to turn themselves in or console families as they grieved. He once persuaded a man who had barricaded himself in a room with six cobras, 19 rattlesnakes, and an iguana to come out peacefully, and then to name his accomplices in an animal smuggling ring. The key was getting him to see things from the snake's perspective, Felix told me. He was a little weird, but he genuinely loved animals. The FBI had a crisis negotiation unit for hostage situations. When things got unusually complicated, they called someone like Felix. There were lessons that Felix would share with younger agents when they asked for advice. Never pretend you're anything other than a cop. Never manipulate or threaten. Ask lots of questions, and when someone becomes emotional, cry or laugh or complain or celebrate with them. But what ultimately made him so good at his job was a bit of a mystery, even to his colleagues. So, in 2014, when a group of psychologists, sociologists, and other researchers were tasked by the Department of Defense to explore new methods for teaching persuasion and negotiation to military officers, essentially, how do we train people to get better at communication? The scientists sought out Felix. They had learned about him from various officials who, when asked to name the best negotiators they had ever worked with, brought up his name again and again. Many of the scientists expected Felix to be tall and handsome, with warm eyes and a rich baritone. The guy who walked in for the interview, however, looked like a middle-aged dad, with a mustache and a little padding around the middle and a, a soft, slightly nasal voice. He seemed kind of unremarkable. Felix told me that after introductions and pleasantries, one of the scientists explained the nature of their project, and then he began with a broad question. Can you tell us how you think about communication? It might be better if I demonstrate it, Felix replied. What's one of your favorite memories? The scientist Felix was speaking to had introduced himself as the head of a large lab. He oversaw millions of dollars in grants and dozens of people. He didn't seem like the kind of guy accustomed to idly reminiscing in the middle of the day. And so the scientist paused before he spoke. Probably my daughter's wedding, he finally said. My whole family was there, and my mother died just a few months later. Felix asked a few follow-up questions and occasionally shared memories of his own. My sister got married in 2010, Felix told the man. She's passed away now. It, it was cancer, which was hard. But she was so beautiful that day. That's how I try to remember her. It went on this way for the next 45 minutes. 
Felix would ask the scientists questions and occasionally talk about himself. When someone revealed something personal, Felix would reciprocate with a story from his own life. One scientist mentioned problems he was having with a teenage daughter, and Felix responded by describing an aunt he couldn't seem to get along with, no matter how hard he tried. When another researcher asked about Felix's childhood, he explained that he had been painfully shy. But his father had been a salesman, and his grandfather a con man. And so by imitating their examples, he had eventually learned how to connect with others. As they got close to the end of their scheduled time together, a professor of psychology chimed in. I'm sorry, she said. This has been wonderful, but I don't feel any closer to understanding what you do. Why do you think so many people recommended we talk to you? That's a fair question, Felix replied. Before I answer, I, I want to ask you, you mentioned that you're a single mom, and I, I imagine there's a lot to juggling motherhood and a career. This might seem unusual, but I'm wondering, what would you tell someone who's getting a divorce? The woman went silent for a beat, and then she said, I, I guess I'll play along. I have lots of advice. When I separated from my husband, at this point, Felix gently interrupted her. I don't really need an answer, he said. But I want to point out that in a room filled with professional colleagues and after less than an hour of conversation, you're willing to talk about one of the most intimate parts of your life. He explained that one reason she felt so at ease was likely because of the environment they had created together. How Felix had listened closely, had asked questions that drew out people's vulnerabilities. How they had all revealed meaningful details about themselves. Felix had encouraged the scientists to explain how they saw the world. And then had proven to them that he had heard what they were saying. Whenever someone said something emotional, even when they didn't realize their emotions were on display, Felix had reciprocated by voicing feelings of his own. All those small choices they had made, he explained had created an atmosphere of trust. It's a set of skills, he told the scientists. There's nothing magical about it. Put differently, anyone can learn to be a super communicator. Let me ask you a question. Who would you call if you were having a bad day? If you had screwed up a deal at work or had gotten into an argument with your spouse or were feeling frustrated and sick of it all, who would you want to talk to? There's likely someone that you know who will make you feel better, who can help you think through a thorny question or share a moment of heartbreak or joy. Now, ask yourself, are they the funniest person in your life? Probably not, but if you paid close attention, you'd notice they laugh more than most people. Are they the most interesting or smartest person you know? What's more likely is that even if they don't say anything particularly wise, you anticipate that you will feel smarter after talking to them. Are they your most entertaining or confident friend? Do they give the best advice? Most likely, nope, nope, and nope. But when you hang up the phone, you'll feel calmer and more centered and closer to the right choice. So what are they doing that makes you feel so good? This book attempts to answer that question. Over the past two decades, a body of research has emerged that sheds light on why some of our conversations go so well, while others are so miserable. These insights can help us hear more clearly and speak more engagingly. We know that our brains have evolved to crave connection. When we click with someone, our eyes often start to dilate in tandem. Our pulses match. We feel the same emotions and start to complete each other's sentences within our minds. This is known as neural entrainment, and it feels wonderful. Sometimes it happens and we have no idea why. We just feel lucky that the conversation went so well. 
Other times, even when we're desperate to bond with someone, we fail again and again. For many of us, conversations can sometimes seem bewildering, stressful, even terrifying. As the playwright George Bernard Shaw once said, the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion it has taken place. But scientists have now unraveled many of the secrets of how successful conversations happen. They've learned that paying attention to someone's body alongside their voice helps us hear them better. They've determined that how we ask a question sometimes matters more than what we ask. We're better off, it seems, acknowledging social differences rather than pretending that they don't exist. Every discussion is influenced by emotions, no matter how rational the topic at hand. And when starting a dialogue, it helps to think of that discussion as a negotiation, where the prize is figuring out what everyone wants. And above all, the most important goal of any conversation is to connect. This book was born in part from my own failures at communicating. A few years ago, I was asked to help manage a relatively complex work project. And I had never been a manager before, but I had worked for plenty of bosses. Plus, I had a fancy MBA from Harvard Business School, and, and as a journalist, I communicated as a profession. So I figured, how hard could this be? Very hard, it turned out. I, I was fine at drawing up schedules and planning logistics, but time and again, I struggled with connecting with other people. One day, a colleague told me that they felt like their suggestions were being ignored, their contributions going unrecognized. It's incredibly frustrating, they said. I told them that I heard them, and I began suggesting possible solutions, like perhaps they should run the meetings, or, or maybe we should draw up a formal organizational chart that clearly spells out everyone's duties, or what if we... You're not listening to me, they interrupted. We don't need clear roles. We need to do a better job of respecting each other. They wanted to talk about how people were treating one another, but I was obsessed with practical fixes. They had told me that they needed empathy, but rather than listen, I replied with solutions. The truth is, a similar dynamic sometimes played out at home. My family would go on vacation and I would find something to obsess over. We didn't get the hotel room we were promised. The guy on the airplane in front of me had reclined a seat. And my wife would listen and she would respond with a perfectly reasonable suggestion. Why don't you just focus on the positive aspects of the trip? And then I, in turn, would get even more upset because it felt like she didn't understand that I was asking for her support. Tell me that I'm right to be outraged rather than sensible advice. Sometimes my kids would want to talk and I, consumed by work or some other distraction, would only half listen to them until they wandered away. I could see in retrospect that I was failing the people who were most important to me, but I didn't know how to fix it. And I was particularly confused by these failures because, as a writer, I'm supposed to communicate for a living. Why was I struggling to connect with and, and to hear the people who mattered most to me? I have a feeling that I'm not alone in this confusion. We've all failed at times to listen to our friends and colleagues, to appreciate what they're trying to tell us, to hear what they're saying. And we've all failed to speak so that we can be understood. This book, then, is an attempt to explain why communication goes awry and what we can do to make it better. At its core, there are a handful of key ideas. The first one is that many discussions are actually three different conversations. There are practical, decision-making conversations that focus on, what's this really about? 
There are emotional conversations, which ask, how do we feel? And there are social conversations that explore, who are we? We're often moving in and out of all three conversations as the dialogue unfolds. However, if we aren't having the same kind of conversation as our partners at the same moment, we're unlikely to connect with each other. What's more, each type of conversation operates by its own logic and requires its own set of skills. And so to communicate well, we have to know how to detect what kind of conversation is occurring and understand how it functions. Which brings me to the second idea at the core of this book. Our goal for the most meaningful discussions should be to have a learning conversation. Specifically, we want to learn how the people around us see the world and help them understand our perspectives in turn. The last big idea isn't really an idea, but rather something I've learned. Anyone can become a super communicator. And in fact, many of us already are, if we learn to unlock our instincts. We can all learn to hear more clearly, to connect on a deeper level. In the chapters ahead, you'll see how executives at Netflix, the creators of the Big Bang Theory, spies and surgeons, NASA psychologists and COVID researchers, how all those people have transformed how they speak and listen. And as a result, have managed to connect with people across seemingly vast divides. And you'll see how those lessons apply to everyday conversations our chats with our workmates or our friends or our romantic partners and our kids, to the barista at the coffee shop and the woman we always wave to on the bus. And that's important because learning to have meaningful conversations is, in some ways, more urgent than ever before. It's no secret the world has become increasingly polarized, that we struggle to hear and be heard. But if we know how to sit down together, to listen to each other, and even if we can't resolve every disagreement, find ways to hear one another and say what is needed, we can coexist and thrive. Every meaningful conversation is made up of countless small choices. There are fleeting moments when the right question or a vulnerable admission or an empathetic word can completely change a dialogue. A silent laugh, a barely audible sigh, a friendly smile during a tense moment. Some people have learned to spot these opportunities, to detect what kind of discussion is occurring, and to understand what others really want. They have learned how to hear what's unsaid and speak so that others want to listen. This, then, is a book that explores how we communicate and connect. Because the right conversation, at the right moment, can change everything. The Three Kinds of Conversation, an Overview Conversation is the communal air we breathe. All day long, we talk to our families, our friends, strangers, coworkers, sometimes even pets. We communicate via text and email, online posts and social media. We speak via keyboards and voice to text, sometimes with handwritten letters and occasionally with grunts or smiles or grimaces and sighs. But not all conversations are equal. When a discussion is meaningful, it can feel wonderful, as if something important has been revealed. Ultimately, the bond of all companionship, whether in marriage or in friendship, is conversation, wrote Oscar Wilde. But meaningful conversations, when they don't go well, they can feel awful. They're frustrating, disappointing, a missed opportunity. 
We might walk away confused or upset, uncertain if anyone understood anything that was said. What makes the difference? As the next chapter explains, our brains have evolved to crave connection. But consistently achieving alignment with other people requires understanding how communication functions. And most important, recognizing that we need to be engaged in the same kind of conversation at the same time if we want to connect. Supercommunicators aren't born with special abilities, but they've thought harder about how conversations unfold, why they succeed or fail, the nearly infinite number of choices that each dialogue offers that can bring us closer together or push us apart. When we learn to recognize those opportunities, we begin to speak and hear in new ways. Chapter 1. The Matching Principle. How to Fail at Recruiting Spies. If Jim Lawler was being honest with himself, he had to admit that he was terrible at recruiting spies. So bad, in fact, that he spent most nights worrying about getting fired from the only job he had ever loved, a, a job he had landed just two years earlier as a case officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. It was 1982, and Lawler was 30 years old. He had joined the CIA after attending law school at the University of Texas, where he had gotten mediocre grades, and then cycling through a series of dull jobs. One day, unsure what to do with his life, he telephoned a CIA headhunter he had once met on campus. A job interview followed, and then a polygraph test, then a dozen more interviews in various cities, and then a series of exams that mostly seemed designed to ferret out everything Lawler didn't know. Who, he wondered to himself after one, memorizes rugby world champions from the 1960s. Eventually, he made it to the final interview. Things weren't looking good. His exam performances had been poor to middling. He had no overseas experience, no knowledge of foreign languages, no military service or special skills. Yet, the interviewer noted, Lawler had flown himself to Washington, D.C. for this interview on his own dime. He had persisted through each test, even when it was clear he didn't have the first clue how to answer most questions. He had responded to every setback with what seemed like admirable, if misplaced, optimism. Why, the man asked, did he want to join the CIA so badly? I've wanted to do something important my entire life, Lawler replied. He wanted to serve his country and bring democracy to nations yearning for freedom. Even as the words came out, he realized how ridiculous they sounded. Who says yearning in an interview? So he stopped and he took a breath and he said the most honest thing he could think of. My life feels empty, he told the interviewer. I want to be part of something meaningful. A week later, the agency called to offer him a job. He accepted immediately, and he reported to Camp Peary, the farm as the agency's training facility in Virginia is known, to be tutored in lockpicking, dead drops, and covert surveillance. The most surprising aspect of the farm's curriculum, however, was the agency's devotion to the art of conversation. In his time there, Lawler learned that working for the CIA was essentially a communications job. A field officer's mandate wasn't slinking in shadows or whispering in parking lots. It was talking to people at parties, making friends in embassies, bonding with foreign officials in the hope that someday you might have a quiet chat about some critical piece of intelligence. Communication is so important that a summary of CIA training methods puts it right up front. Quote, find ways to connect, it says. 
A case officer's goal should be to have a prospective agent come to believe, hopefully with good reason, that the case officer is one of the few people, perhaps the only person, who truly understands him. Lawler finished spy school with high marks and was shipped off to Europe. His assignment was to establish rapport with foreign bureaucrats, to cultivate friendships with embassy attaches, and to develop other sources who might be willing to have candid conversations, and thereby, his bosses hoped, open channels for discussions that make the world's affairs a bit more manageable. Lawler's first few months abroad were miserable. He tried his best to blend in. He attended black tie soirees and had drinks at bars near embassies. Nothing worked. There was a clerk from the Chinese delegation that he met après ski and repeatedly invited to lunch and cocktails. Eventually, Lawler worked up the courage to inquire if his new friend perhaps wanted to earn some extra cash passing along gossip he heard inside his embassy. The man replied that his family was quite wealthy, thank you, and his bosses tended to execute people for things like that. He would pass. Then there was a receptionist from the Soviet consulate who seemed promising until one of Lawler's superiors took him aside and explained that she, in fact, worked for the KGB and she was trying to recruit him. Eventually, a career-saving opportunity appeared. A CIA colleague mentioned that a young woman from the Middle East who worked in her country's foreign ministry was visiting. Yasmin was on vacation, the colleague explained, staying with a brother who had moved to Europe. A few days later, Lawler managed to, quote, bump into her at a restaurant. He introduced himself as an oil speculator. As they began talking, Yasmin mentioned that her brother was always busy, never available for sightseeing. She seemed lonely. Lawler invited her to lunch the next day and asked about her life. Did she like her job? Was it hard living in a country that had recently undergone a conservative revolution? Yasmin confided that she hated the religious radicals who had come to power. She longed to move away to live in Paris or New York, but for that she needed money, and it had taken months of saving just to afford this brief trip. Lawler, sensing an opening, mentioned that his oil company was looking for a consultant. It, it was part-time work, he said, assignments that she could do alongside her job at the foreign ministry. But he could offer her a signing bonus. We ordered champagne, and I thought she was going to start crying she was so happy, he told me. After lunch, Lawler rushed back to the office to find his boss. Finally, he had recruited his first spy. And he tells me, congratulations, headquarters is going to be overjoyed. Now you need to tell her that you're CIA and you'll want information about her government. Lawler thought that was a terrible idea. If he was honest with Yasmin, she'd never speak to him again. But his boss explained that it was unfair to ask someone to work for the CIA without being forthright. If Yasmin's government ever found out, she would be jailed, possibly killed. She had to understand the risks. So Lawler continued meeting with Yasmin and tried to find the right moment to reveal his true employer. She became increasingly candid as they spent more time together. She was ashamed that her government was shutting down newspapers and prohibiting free speech, she told him. And she despised the bureaucrats who had made it illegal for women to study certain topics in college and had forced them to wear hijabs in public. When she first sought out a job with the government, she said, she had never imagined things would get this bad. Lawler took this as a sign. One night, over dinner, he explained that he was not an oil speculator, but rather an American intelligence officer. He told her that the United States wanted the same things that she did, to undermine her country's theocracy, to weaken its leaders, to stop the repression of women, 
He apologized for lying about who he was, but the job offer was real. Would she consider working for the Central Intelligence Agency? As I talked, I watched her eyes get bigger and bigger, and she started gripping the tablecloth and then shaking her head, no, no, no. And when I finally stopped, she started crying, and I knew I was screwed, Lawler told me. She said they murdered people for that, that there was no way she could help. There was nothing he could say to convince her to consider the idea. All she wanted was to get away from me. Lawler went back to his boss with the bad news. And he says, I've already told everyone you recruited her. I I told the division chief and the chief of station, and they told DC. Now you want me to tell them you can't close the deal? Lawler had no idea what to do next. He told me that no amount of money or promises would have convinced her to take a suicidal risk. The only possible way forward was convincing Yasmin that she could trust him, that he understood her and would protect her. But how do you do that? They taught me at the farm that to recruit someone, you have to convince them that you care about them, which means you have to actually care about them, which means you have to connect in some way. And I had no idea how to make that happen. How do we create a genuine connection with another person? How do we nudge someone through a conversation to take a risk or embrace an adventure or accept a job or or go on a date? Let's lower the stakes a little bit. What if you're trying to bond with your boss or get to know a new friend? How do you convince them to let down their guard? How do you show you're listening? Over the past few decades, as new methods for studying our behaviors and brains have emerged, these kinds of questions have driven researchers to examine nearly every aspect of communication. Scientists have scrutinized how our minds absorb information and have found that connecting with others through speech is both more powerful and more complicated than we ever realized. How we communicate, the unconscious decisions we make as we speak and listen, the questions we ask and the vulnerabilities we expose, even our tone of voice, can influence who we trust, are persuaded by, and seek out as friends. Alongside this new understanding, there's also been a flurry of research showing that at the heart of every conversation is the potential for neurological synchronization, an alignment of our brains and bodies, everything from how fast each of us breathes to the goosebumps on our skin that we often fail to notice, but which influences how we talk, hear, and think. Some people consistently fail to synchronize with others, even when they're speaking to close friends. Others, let's call them super communicators, seem to synchronize effortlessly with just about anyone. Most of us lie somewhere in between, but we can learn to connect in more meaningful ways if we understand how conversations work. For Jim Lawler, however, the path towards making a connection with Yasmin seemed murky. I knew, at most, I had one more chance to talk to her, he told me. I had to figure out how to break through. When Brains Connect When Bo Seavers joined the Dartmouth Social Systems Lab in 2012, he still looked like the musician he had been a few years earlier. Some days he would rush to the laboratory after waking up, his blonde hair in a frizzy nimbus and dressed in a ratty t-shirt from some jazz fest, sprinting past campus cops who were uncertain if he was a PhD candidate or a weed dealer servicing undergraduates. Seavers had taken a circuitous route to the Ivy League. For college, he had attended a music conservatory where he studied drumming and music production at the exclusion of pretty much everything else. Soon, however, he began to suspect that no amount of practice would deliver the rarefied status of drummers who can support themselves by drumming. So he began exploring other careers. 
He had always been fascinated by how people communicate. In particular, he loved the voiceless musical dialogues that sometimes emerged on stage. There were moments when he was improvising with other musicians, and suddenly everyone would click, as if they were sharing one brain. It felt as if the performers, as well as the audience, and the guy at the mixing board, even the bartender, all of them were suddenly in sync. He sometimes felt the same thing during great late-night discussions or successful dates. So he signed up for a few psychology classes, and eventually applied to a Ph.D. program with Dr. Talia Wheatley, one of the foremost neuroscientists researching how humans connect with one another. Why people click with some people but not others is one of the great unsolved mysteries of science, Wheatley wrote in the journal Social and Personality Psychology Compass. When we align with someone through conversation, Wheatley explained, it feels wonderful, in part because our brains have evolved to crave these kinds of connections. The desire to connect has pushed people to form communities, to protect their offspring, to seek out new friends and alliances. It's one reason why our species has survived. Human beings have the rare capacity, she wrote, to connect with each other against all odds. Numerous other researchers have also been fascinated by how we form connections. As Sievers began reading science journals, he learned that in 2012, scholars at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Germany had studied the brains of guitarists playing Scheidler's Sonata in D major. When the musicians played their guitars separately, with each person focused on their own musical score, their neural activity looked dissimilar. But when they segued into a duet, the electrical pulses within their craniums began to synchronize. To the researchers, it appeared as if the guitarists' minds had merged. What's more, that linkage often flowed through their bodies. They frequently began breathing at similar rates. Their eyes dilated in tandem. Their hearts began to beat in similar patterns. Frequently, even the electrical impulses along their skin would synchronize. Then when they stopped playing together, as their scores diverged or they veered into solos, the between-brain synchronization disappeared completely, the scientists wrote. Sievers found other studies showing the same phenomena when people hummed together or tapped their fingers side by side or solved cooperative puzzles or told each other stories. In one experiment, researchers at Princeton measured the neural activity of a dozen people listening to a young woman recount a long and convoluted tale about her prom night. As they monitored the speaker's brain alongside the brains of her listeners— they saw the listeners' minds synchronize with the narrator until they were all experiencing the same feelings of stress and unease, joy and humor at the same time, as if they were telling the story together. What's more, some listeners synchronized particularly closely with the speaker. Their brain seemed to behave nearly precisely like her brain. When questioned afterwards, those tightly aligned participants could distinguish between the story's characters more clearly and recall smaller details. The more people's brains had synchronized, the better they understood what was said. The extent of the speaker-listener neural coupling predicts the success of the communication, the researchers wrote in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2010. Super communicators. These and other studies make clear an essential truth. To communicate with someone, we must connect with them. When we absorb what someone is saying and they comprehend what we say, it's because our brains have, to some degree, aligned. 
At that moment, our bodies, our pulses, facial expressions, the emotions we experience, the prickling sensation on our necks and arms often start to synchronize as well. There is something about neural synchronization that helps us listen more closely and speak more clearly. Sometimes this connection occurs with just one other person. Other times it happens within a group or a large audience. But whenever it happens, our brains and bodies become alike because we are, in the language of neuroscientists, neurally entrained. Put differently, when we are not neurally aligned, we have trouble communicating. But when we start thinking alike, we understand each other better. As researchers have scrutinized how entrainment occurs, they've discovered that some people are particularly skilled at this kind of synchronization. Some individuals are consistently better at connecting. Scientists like Seavers don't call these people super communicators. They prefer terms like high centrality participant or core information provider. But Seavers knew what these kinds of people look like. They were the friends everyone called for advice, the colleagues elected to leadership positions, the co-workers everyone welcomed into a conversation because they made it more fun. Seavers had performed on stage with super communicators, had sought them out at parties, had voted for them. He had even at times achieved moments of super communication himself, usually without understanding exactly how. None of the studies Seavers read, however, seemed to explain why some people were better at synchronization than others. So Seavers decided to stage an experiment to see if he could figure it out. To begin, Seavers and his colleagues gathered dozens of volunteers and asked them to watch a series of movie clips that were designed to be difficult to understand. Some, for example, were in a foreign language. Others were brief scenes from the middle of a film, completely decontextualized. To make the clips even harder to follow, the researchers had removed all audio and subtitles. So what participants saw were confusing, silent performances. A, a bald and irate man in strained conversation with a blonde, heavyset fellow. Are they friends or enemies? In another, a cowboy takes a bath while a second man observes from the doorway. Is he a sibling? A lover? The volunteers' brains were monitored as they watched these clips, and researchers saw that each person reacted slightly differently. Some were confused, others were entertained, but no two brain scans were alike. Then, each participant was assigned to a small group and told to answer a few questions together. Is the bald man angry at the blonde man? Is the man in the doorframe sexually attracted to the man in the bath? After the group spent an hour discussing their answers, they were put back into the brain scanners and shown the same clips. This time, the researchers saw that participants' neural impulses had synchronized with those of their groupmates. Taking part in a conversation, debating what they had seen, discussing plot points, had caused their brains to align. Put differently, when people do things like watch movies separately, they think differently. But when they begin to talk, their thoughts align. However, there was a second, even more interesting discovery. Some of the groups had become much more synchronized than others. The brains of these participants looked strikingly alike during the second scan, as if they had all agreed to think precisely the same way. Seaver suspected these groups included someone special, the type of person who made it easier for everyone to align. But who were they? 
His first hypothesis was that having a strong leader made synchronization easier. Indeed, in some groups, there was one person who had taken charge from the start. I think it's going to have a happy ending, one such leader, known as Participant 4 in Group D, told his teammates regarding a clip of a child who appeared to be looking for his parents. Participant 4 was talkative and direct. He assigned roles to his groupmates and kept everyone on task. Perhaps Participant 4, in addition to being a leader, was also a super communicator. But when Seavers looked at the data, he found that strong leaders didn't help people align. In fact, groups with a dominant leader had the least amount of neural synchrony. Participant 4 made it harder for his groupmates to sync up. When he dominated the conversation, he pushed everyone else into their own separate thoughts. Rather, the groups with the greatest synchrony had one or two people who behaved very differently from Participant 4. These people tended to speak less than dominant leaders. And when they did open their mouths, it was usually to ask questions. They repeated others' ideas and were quick to admit their own confusion or to make fun of themselves. They encouraged their groupmates with things like, that's really smart, tell me more about what you think, and laughed at others' jokes. They didn't stand out as particularly talkative or clever, but when they spoke, everyone listened closely. And somehow, they made it easier for other people to speak up. They made conversations flow. Seavers began referring to these people as high-centrality participants. Here, for instance, are two high-centrality participants discussing the bathtub scene, which featured the actors Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. High-centrality participant one. What's with that scene? High-centrality participant two. I have no idea. I was lost. Laughter. Participant 3. Casey is watching Brad in the bath. Based on the length of the stare, we think Casey is attracted to Brad. Group laughter. Unrequited love. High centrality participant 2. Oh, I like that. I, I don't know what unrequited means, but yeah. Participant 3. Like, not returned. High centrality participant 2. Oh, okay, yeah. High centrality participant 1. What do you think will happen in the next scene? Participant 3. I feel like they're going to rob a bank. Laughter. High centrality participant one. I like that. I like that. High centrality participant two. Yeah, I was waiting for some other epiphany. Laughter. High centrality participants tended to ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as other participants. When a group got stuck, they made it easy for everyone to take a quick break by bringing up a new topic or interrupting an awkward silence with a joke. But the most important difference between high centrality participants and everyone else was that the high-centrality participants were constantly adjusting how they communicated in order to match their companions. They subtly reflected shifts in other people's moods and attitudes. When someone got serious, they matched that seriousness. When a discussion went light, they were the first to play along. They changed their minds frequently and let themselves be swayed by their groupmates. In one conversation, when a participant brought up an unexpectedly serious idea, that a character in a clip had been abandoned, the participant's tone hinting that he might understand abandonment himself, the high-centrality participant immediately matched his tone. Participant 2. How do you think this movie will end? Participant 6. I don't think it's a happy ending. High-centrality participant. You don't think it's a happy ending? Participant 6. No. High-centrality participant. Why not? Participant 6. I don't know. 
This movie seemed to be more darker than High Centrality Participant. How will it end? Participant 6. It might be the nephew and the parent died or, or something like this, and they... Participant 3. He's just been abandoned. High Centrality Participant. Yeah, abandoned for the night. Yeah. Within moments of that exchange, the entire group became serious-minded and started discussing what abandonment felt like. They made room for Participant 6 to discuss his emotions and experiences. The high-centrality participant matched Participant 6's gravity, which nudged others to do so as well. High-centrality participants, Seavers and his co-authors wrote in their results, were much more likely to adapt their own brain activity to the group and played an outsized role in creating group alignment by facilitating conversation. But they didn't merely mirror others. Rather, they gently led people, nudging them to hear one another or to explain themselves more clearly. They matched their groupmates' conversational styles, making room for seriousness or laughter, and invited others to match them in return. And they had enormous influence on how people ended up answering the questions they had been assigned. In fact, whichever opinion the high-centrality participants endorsed, it usually became the group's consensus answer. But that influence was almost invisible. When polled afterward, few people realized how much the high-centrality participants had swayed their own choices. Not every group had such a person. But those that did all seemed closer to one another afterwards, and their brain scans showed they were more aligned. When Seavers looked at the lives of high-centrality participants, he found they were unusual in other respects. They had much larger social networks than the average person and were more likely to be elected to positions of authority or entrusted with power. Other people turned to them when they needed to discuss something serious or ask for advice. And that makes sense, Seavers told me. Because if you're the kind of person who's easy to talk to, then lots of people are going to want to talk to you. In other words, the high-centrality participants were super communicators. The Three Mindsets So, to become a super communicator... All we need to do is listen closely to what's said and unsaid, ask the right questions, recognize and match others' moods, and make our own feelings easy for others to perceive. Simple, right? Well, no, of course not. Each of those tasks is difficult on its own. Together, they can seem impossible. To understand how super communicators do what they do, it's useful to explore what happens inside our brains when we're in a conversation. Researchers have studied how our minds function during different sorts of discussions and have found that various neural networks and brain structures become active during different types of dialogue. Simplifying greatly, there are three kinds of conversation that dominate most discussions. These three conversations, which correspond to practical decision-making conversations, emotional conversations, and conversations about identity, are best captured by three questions. What's this really about? How do we feel? And who are we? Each of these conversations, as we will see, draws on a different type of mindset and mental processing. When we have a conversation about, say, a choice, a what's-this-really-about conversation, we're activating different parts of our brains from when we discuss our feelings, the how-do-we-feel discussion. And if our mind doesn't align with the brains of our conversational partners, we'll all feel like we didn't fully understand one another. The first mindset, the decision-making mindset, 
is associated with the what's this really about conversation. And it's active whenever we're thinking about practical matters, such as making choices or analyzing plans. When someone says, what are we going to do about Sam's grades? Our brain's frontal control network, the command center for our thoughts and actions, becomes active. We have to make a series of decisions, often subconsciously, to evaluate the words we heard, but also to consider what motives or desires might be lurking underneath. Is this discussion serious or playful? Should I offer a solution or just listen? The what's this really about conversation is integral to thinking about the future, negotiating options, discussing intellectual concepts, and determining what we want to discuss, our goals for this conversation, and how we should discuss it. The second mindset, the emotional mindset, emerges when we discuss how do we feel and draws on neural structures, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, and the hippocampus, among others, that help shape our beliefs, emotions, and memories. When we tell a funny story or have an argument with our spouse or experience a rush of pride or sorrow during a conversation, that's the emotional mindset at work. When a friend complains to us about their boss and we sense that they're asking for empathy rather than advice, it's because we're attuned to how do we feel. The third conversational mindset, the social mindset, emerges when we discuss our relationships, how we're seen by others and see ourselves, and our social identities. These are the who are we discussions. When we, for instance, gossip about office politics or figure out the people we know in common or explain how our religion or family background or any other identity, how it influences us, we're using our brain's default mode network, which plays a role in how we think about other people, oneself, and the relation of oneself to other people, as the neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman wrote. One 1997 study published in the journal Human Nature found that 70% of our conversations are social in nature. During those dialogues, the social mindset is constantly shaping how we listen and what we say. Each of these conversations and each mindset is, of course, deeply intertwined. We often use all three during a single dialogue. The important thing to understand is that these mindsets can shift as a conversation unfolds. For example, a discussion might begin when a friend asks for help thinking through a work problem. What's this really about? And then proceeds to admit he's feeling stressed. How do we feel? Before finally focusing on how other people will react when they learn about this issue. Who are we? If we could see inside our friend's skull during this conversation, we would see, and I'm simplifying greatly here, the decision-making mindset becoming dominant at first, and then the emotional mindset assuming primacy, and then the social mindset asserting influence. Miscommunication occurs when people are having different kinds of conversations. If you are speaking emotionally while I'm talking practically, we are, in essence, using different cognitive languages. This explains why, when you complain about your boss, Jim is driving me crazy, and your spouse responds with a practical suggestion, what if you just invited him to lunch? It's more apt to create conflict than connection. I'm not asking you to solve this. I just want some empathy. Super communicators know how to evoke synchronization by encouraging people to match how they're communicating. Psychologists who study married couples, for instance, have found that the happiest spouses frequently mirror each other's speaking styles. The underlying mechanism that maintains closeness in marriage is symmetry, one prominent researcher, John Gottman, wrote in the Journal of Communication, happy couples 
communicate agreement not with the speaker's point of view or content, but with the speaker's affect. Happy couples ask each other more questions. They repeat what the other person said. They make tension-easing jokes. They get serious together. The next time you feel yourself edging towards an argument, try asking your partner, do you want to talk about our emotions or do we need to make a decision together? Or is this about something else? The importance of this insight, that communication comes from connection and alignment, is so fundamental that it has become known as the matching principle. Effective communication requires recognizing what kind of conversation is occurring and then matching each other. On a very basic level, if someone seems emotional, allow yourself to become emotional as well. If someone is intent on decision-making, match that focus. If they are preoccupied by social implications, reflect that fixation back to them. It's important to note that matching isn't mimicry. As you'll see in the forthcoming chapters, we need to genuinely understand what someone is feeling, what they want, and who they are. And then, to match them, we need to know how to share ourselves in return. When we align, we start to connect. And that's when a meaningful conversation begins. To recruit a spy, connect. After the disastrous dinner where he had revealed that he worked for the CIA and Yasmin had fled, it didn't seem to Lawler like there was much hope left. This was his only potential recruitment after nearly a year of work. He had completely messed things up and was fairly certain this failure was going to cost him his job. Only one option remained, to call Yasmin and beg her to join him for one last meal. I filled up a notebook with ideas for what to say to her, but I knew it was pointless, Lawler told me. Nothing was going to break through. Yasmin agreed to a final dinner. They went to a fancy restaurant where she sat, quiet and on edge through the entire meal. Her anxiety wasn't just due to Lawler's proposal, she told him. She was flying home soon and was nervous and discouraged. She had hoped this trip would reveal something to her, show her how to live a more meaningful life. But here she was, about to go home, and everything was the same. She felt like she had disappointed herself. She was so sad, Lawler told me, so I tried to cheer her up, you know, little jokes, funny stories. Lawler talked about a landlord who had kept forgetting his name and reminisced about sightseeing trips they had taken together. Yasmin remained glum. Eventually, it was time for dessert. A silence crept in. Lawler wondered if he should try one more pitch. Should he offer to get her a visa to America for her cooperation? Too risky, he decided. She might just stand up and leave. The silence extended. Lawler had no idea what to say. The last time he had felt this loss was before he had joined the CIA, when he had worked for his father selling steel components in Dallas. I had never sold a thing in my life before that, he told me. I was terrible at it. There was this one day after months of discouraging sales calls when he had visited a potential client, a, a woman running a small construction firm in West Texas, who was on the phone when he arrived, her five-year-old son playing with blocks alongside her desk. When the woman hung up, she listened to Lawler's pitch for Steel Joyce and thanked him for stopping by. Then she began talking about the challenges of juggling work and motherhood. It was a constant struggle, she said. She always felt as if she was letting someone down, having to choose between being a good businesswoman or a good mom. Lawler was in his early 20s at the time, and he didn't have any children. He basically had nothing in common with this woman and had no idea how to reply to her. But he had to say something. So he started rambling about his own family. 
It was hard working for his dad, he told her. His brother was a better salesman, and that had caused some tension between them. She'd been honest with me, and so I was honest back, Lawler told me. It felt good to tell the truth. He ended up sharing more than he intended, more than seemed appropriate, to be honest. But she didn't seem to mind. Then Lawler returned to his sales spiel, and she told me she didn't need any components, but she appreciated the conversation, he said. And I left thinking, well, there's another screw-up. Two months later, the woman called and placed a huge order. I told her, I'm not sure we can give you the pricing you're looking for. That's how bad a salesman I was, Lawler told me. And she said, that's okay. I feel like we have a connection. That experience had reshaped Lawler's approach to sales. From then on, whenever he spoke to clients, he listened closely to their moods and concerns and enthusiasms and tried to relate to them, to show that he understood at least a little bit what they were feeling. He slowly became a better salesman. Not great, but better. I learned that if you listen for someone's truth and you put your truth next to it, you might reach them. His goal during sales calls became simply to connect. He didn't try to pressure or impress clients. He just tried to find something they shared. It didn't work all the time, he said. But it worked enough. Eating dessert with Yasmin it occurred to Lawler that he had forgotten this lesson. He had been thinking of recruiting spies as completely different from selling steel. But at some level, they were the same basic activity. In both situations, he needed to connect with someone, which meant he had to show them he was hearing what they were trying to say. But he hadn't done that with Yasmin, he realized, not in an honest way, not like he had with that mother in West Texas. He hadn't proved that he heard Yasmin's anxieties and hopes, hadn't been authentic about himself. He hadn't shared with her the way she had with him. So, once the dishes were cleared, Lawler started talking about how he felt. He told Yasmin he was worried he wasn't cut out for this life. He had worked so hard to get into the CIA, but he found himself lacking something, some kind of confidence that he saw in his peers. He told her about all the times he'd clumsily approached foreign officials, how terrified he was that they would report him and he'd get deported. He described his embarrassment when a colleague had explained that he was trying to recruit a KGB officer who was simultaneously seeking to recruit him. He told her he was worried he was a failure just for admitting all this to her. But he understood a little what she was feeling when she thought about returning home. He had felt the same way back in Texas, when he was desperate for a life that mattered. Instead of trying to cheer up Yasmin, he talked about his own frustrations and disappointments the same way she had. It felt like the most honest thing he could do. I wasn't trying to be manipulative, Lawler told me. She'd already refused me, and I knew I wasn't going to change her mind. So I stopped trying. It, it felt good to stop pretending I had all the answers. Yasmin listened. She told Lawler she understood. The worst part, she said, was that she felt as if she were betraying herself. She wanted to do something, but she felt powerless. She began to cry. I'm sorry, Lawler told her. I didn't mean to make you sad. This was all a mistake, he thought to himself. I, I should have left her alone. He would have to report this discussion in detail to the agency. It would be one final embarrassment to cap off a humiliating year. Then Yasmin gathered herself. I can do this, she whispered. What do you mean, Lawler said. I can help you, she replied. You don't have to, he said. He was caught so off guard that he blurted the first thought in his mind. 
We don't have to see each other ever again. I promise I'll leave you alone. I want to do something important, she said. This matters. I can do it. I know I can. Two days later, Yasmin underwent polygraph testing and training in secure communication methods at a CIA safe house. You'd never seen someone so nervous, Lawler told me, but she stuck with it. She never said she was having second thoughts. Once she was back home, Yasmin began sending Lawler messages detailing the memos she had seen, the officials the foreign minister had hosted, the gossip she'd overheard. She became one of the best sources in the region, said Lawler. She was a gold mine. For the next two decades, as Yasmin's career inside the foreign ministry thrived, she communicated regularly with the CIA, helping them understand what was happening behind the scenes, putting context around governmental declarations, making quiet introductions. Her assistance was never discovered by the authorities. Lawler still has no real idea why Yasmin changed her mind that night. In the years that followed, he asked her to explain it numerous times, but even she struggled to say what had caused the shift. She told him that somehow, during dinner, when it became clear they were both so uncertain of themselves, she suddenly felt safe with him. They understood each other. She could hear for the first time what he had been trying to tell her. This could be important. You could make a difference. And she felt genuinely heard. They agreed to trust each other. When we match someone's mindset, a permission is granted to enter another person's head to see the world through their eyes, to understand what they care about and need. And we give them permission to understand and hear us in return. Conversations are the most powerful thing on earth, Lawler told me. But matching is also hard. Simply mirroring another person's gestures or moods or tone of voice, that doesn't forge a real connection. Giving in to someone else's desires and preoccupations doesn't work either. Those aren't real conversations. They're dueling monologues. Instead, we have to learn to distinguish a decision-making conversation from an emotional conversation from a social conversation. We need to understand which kinds of questions and vulnerabilities are powerful and how to make our own feelings more visible and easier to read. We need to prove to others that we are listening closely. When Lawler managed to connect with Yasmin at dinner, it was more luck than anything else. Afterward, he would spend years trying to repeat that success and failing until he had polished his skills and understood how to make authentic connections. Eventually, Lawler became one of the CIA's most successful recruiters of overseas assets. By the time he retired in 2005, he had convinced dozens of foreign officials to participate in sensitive conversations. Then, he began teaching his methods to other case officers. Today, Lawler's techniques are woven into the agency's training materials. As one document on recruiting foreign agents puts it, a case officer creates an ever-deeper relationship through this process, from becoming an associate, then a friend in the assessment phases, and then moving to the role of a sounding board and confidant as development moves to recruitment. As a result, the overseas asset can look forward to each meeting as a chance to spend quality time with a comrade he can trust with his life. In other words, CIA recruiters are taught how to synchronize. And as one officer trained by Lawler told me, once you understand how it works, it's completely learnable. She told me that she's always been an introvert, and so I hadn't thought much about communication before I started my training. 
But once someone shows you how a conversation works, how to pay attention to what's going on, you start noticing all these things you missed before. These aren't just skills she uses at work, this officer told me. She uses them with her parents and her boyfriend, the people she sees at the grocery store. She notices when her colleagues use their training in everyday meetings, nudging each other to align better, listen more closely, speak in ways that make it easier for others to understand. She told me that from the outside, it seems like a Jedi mind trick, but it's just something you learn and then practice and then do. In other words, it's a set of skills anyone can use. And the chapters ahead explain how. A Guide to Using These Ideas Part 1 The Four Rules for a Meaningful Conversation Happily married couples, successful negotiators, persuasive politicians, influential executives, and other kinds of super communicators tend to have a few behaviors in common. Usually, they're as interested in figuring out what kind of conversation everyone wants as the topics they hope to discuss. They ask more questions about others' feelings and backgrounds. They talk about their own goals and emotions and are quick to discuss their vulnerabilities, experiences, and the various identities they possess and to ask others about their emotions and experiences. They inquire how other people see the world. Then they prove their listening, and they share their own perspectives in return. In other words, during the most meaningful conversations, the best communicators focus on four basic rules that create what's known as a learning conversation. Rule one is pay attention to what kind of conversation is occurring. Rule two, share your goals and ask what others are seeking. Rule three, ask about others' feelings and share your own. Rule four, explore if identities are important to this discussion. Each of these rules will be explored in a series of guides throughout this book. For now, though, let's just focus on the first one, which draws on what we've learned about the matching principle. Rule one. Pay attention to what kind of conversation is occurring. The most effective communicators pause before they speak and they ask themselves, why am I opening my mouth? Unless we know what kind of discussion we're hoping for and what type of discussion our companions want, we're at a disadvantage. As the last chapter explained, we might want to discuss practicalities while our partner wants to share their feelings. We might want to gossip while they want to make plans. If we're not having the same kind of conversation, we're unlikely to connect. So the first goal in a learning conversation is identifying what kind of dialogue we're seeking and then looking for clues about what the other parties want. This can be as simple as taking a moment to clarify for yourself what you hope to say and how you want to say it. My goal is to ask Maria if she wants to go on vacation together, but to do it in a way that makes it easy for her to say no if she doesn't want to come. Or it might consist of asking a spouse, as he describes a hard day, do you want me to suggest some solutions, or do you just need to vent? In one project examining how a group of investment bankers communicated among themselves inside a high-pressure firm, researchers tested a simple method to make daily discussions easier. Within this company, screaming matches occurred regularly, and colleagues were in competition for deals and bonuses. Disagreements sometimes led to prolonged fights, and meetings were often tense. But the researchers believed they could make these battles less fierce 